Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. There is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am Lucy Race and I am in the driver's seat again this week. A week where we have seen the relaxing of more COVID-19 restrictions, but we're still socially distancing. It's a week where some live sports being played in Australia while more sports are gearing up. And it's also a week where events in the US have demanded our attention and ripples are being felt in countries around the world, including here in Australia. To help discuss all of these issues and more... I am joined by my supremely smart, sometimes silly, consistently sassy Sanctum sisters, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Julia Kiera. I'm Rana Hussein, and always silly. And I'm Tess Armstrong, and always silly too. It's great to be back. So nice to see your faces, everyone. So good. And lovely to be in your ears. Thank you for joining us. Lifting of some restrictions has caught up, especially here in Victoria. What's that meant for you guys this week? I was very anti-socialising, and I'm an anti-social person by nature, so lockdown quite suited my personality. I was like, great, I get to stay inside and do puzzles and study. My life is completely the same as it was before. However, when... Things were, you know, lifted and friends wanted to have catch-ups or dinners or whatever. I was like, oh, okay, and family were around and I thought, great. And on the weekend we saw, you know, two lots of family, a lot of friends for kind of coffees or whatever. And by the time I got home, I had to go to bed at like 8 o'clock. I was so exhausted from socialising. I have lost all match fitness. And if my socialising fitness is, is anything to go by, I'm very intrigued to see round one of football because I don't know how those players are going to do it. Like once you just get out of the habit, it's really hard to get back in. You need mm. some contact drills. I do. I need to be going out with mini coffees for like 15-minute bursts, <laughs> kind of like the beep test. And so every beep we change topics and I can kind of try and keep up. Very stressful. <laughs> how about you, Rana? Yeah, I was much the same. We had two rounds of family and friends come over. It was a lot because it also required me doing a lot more cooking than I'm used to. (laughs) But I have to say I've loved it because we just invited people who had other little kids because finally my daughter can have play dates, which means we get a break. So (laughs) it was incredible. That's good. And you, Julia? Yeah, well, I've had a similar experience with family and my son getting to play with his cousins, which he loves. So that's lovely. But the thing for me, so my son's four and, you know, would hopefully be going to school next year. And so this is our last year of Mummy boy time. Pre-COVID, you know, we would go to the zoo and he would hold my hand the whole day or we'd go to the museum and he'd hold my hand and now it's they're open again so we can have that time back. <laughs> yeah, because it's special time and I don't want to wish it away so it's nice we'll get those opportunities again. God, that's so healthy. Yeah, <laughs> it's so important. Well, for me- <laughs> oh, to be a year ago, Rana. Right. Remember exactly. that. <laughs> 
Well, for me, I can actually start looking to some junior footy, which is really exciting. So my son's actually part of the Yarra Junior Football League, which is the largest junior football league in Victoria. And they have announced that they're going to play a season of 12 rounds starting off in the middle of July. So we haven't started training yet. All of those things have to be put in place, but they'll be following the AFL return to training protocols. There'll be restrictions about you know, training in groups under 20 and no contact drills. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that all of the teams are going to need a COVID safety officer. Mm. So it's going to rely on volunteers to do that work and to take on that responsibility. I was going to ask you about this, Lucy, because I live in the country and I know that a lot of the country leagues aren't going ahead. One of the reasons they cited was essentially there's not enough people that live in the regions to be volunteers and there wouldn't be enough money coming in to put the games on. Is it that there are so is it the parent element that there are more volunteers what what do you think it is that is going to let Yara Valley go ahead From my observation this is purely just you know ob- mm. observing there are a lot of parent volunteers involved in, in getting the game on the park anyway. So I think on a match day, there's something like 13 jobs that mm. need doing yeah. and you are rostered onto something every week yeah. and you really do need to show up. And they're, they're big jobs. Like the job of a team manager of a junior mm. football team is, is a massive job. There's probably just a feeling that there'll be the enthusiasm to put your hand up for yeah. those roles. That's very interesting. Do you think you'll um, use fake? crowd noise or will you be loud enough? <laughs> well, they haven't actually, I haven't read anything about what the restrictions on crowds are going to be, but you can always get there early, get a good park and toot the horn, <laughs> which is quite yes. good. And risk your windscreen. <laughs> True. Don't park behind the goals. So we did, you know, you mentioned there crowd noises. We did see some sport over the weekend with the NRL season kicking off. There was no real life crowds, but there was something else. Tess, what did you see? I know it's going to come as a shock to you all, but I was, I prejudged the NRL, which (laughs) I was very judgy about it. I thought, oh, gross. However, then I watched the NRL thinking it would be terrible and actually it wasn't that bad. And you know what made me think? I'm a producer and I'm also a sound person and I should probably have more faith in other sound people and other producers. They probably know what they're doing and it, they managed to ride the levels and make it sound relatively natural even though it wasn't. It was interesting. I heard Waleed Ali speaking on Offsiders and he made the point that there's there's quite a different perspective coming back to sport now that mm. when first we had no crowds at the start of the COVID-19 restrictions, we really saw what was missing, Mm -hmm. whereas because we're now coming back, we're seeing what's there. And Mm. so I really appreciated the way he articulated, I guess, the different state of mind that we're approaching sport with now. We'll Mm. take what we can get. In a perfect world, what would you do, Tess? Well, I'm actually going to steal an idea they did in Denmark. This was also an offside, as they showed, and I was blown away. Essentially, the, the first row of the ground, so imagine, you know, the lower level, first row of the MCG, were all screens, turned into screens, and they were all Zoom calls into individual lounge rooms and houses. And so people were watching in real time and celebrating in real time and you could hear them all. It was so fun that that's what I would miss, the actual natural reactions Mm. of things and that might be anything. It might be despair, which they probably don't have the right sound effects for despair. For my anxiety, how would you you put that in a sound effect? I don't know. So I kind of think I'd steal that idea. Yeah, we were talking about this at home as well and we're wondering if clubs will now start to like hire out pubs and then Zoom that crowd in because we'll eventually get to, you know, 20 people in a pub, 50 people in a pub, which would be enough to kind of 
create some kind of atmosphere. I feel like sponsors should be getting onto that. I think that as a viewer at home watching it, yeah, I want I want to hear some noise that kind of keeps you more engaged in the game and helps you kind of ride the mm. drama. But at ground level, it, is, is any of these sounds actually being projected into the arenas? Because mm. I think that if I was a coach, I still want it to be silent because your ability to coach from the boundary and players to um, talk to each other on the field is so much better. And we noticed that, you know, in that first round when there was no crowd noise, that the actual on-field communication was really elevated, which I think actually benefits players and coaches. But as a spectator, I don't want to hear it. It's like being described how the sausage gets made. But, yes, um... <laughs> for sure. <laughs> this is boring. I want to think you do it naturally. Yes, that's exactly right. I just want to think that this all just is intuitive. I don't know that I'd be very useful if I was a Zoom participant because when go- games get a bit too close, I often disappear to the bathroom and lock myself in there. So they just get a blank screen from me. And you don't want the Zoom in the bathroom. Just no, it out definitely there. not. <laughs> Turn your video off. I'm Natasha Stock-Desquare and you're listening to the Outer Sanctum Podcast. Okay, are you ready to dig in and melee, ladies? This week we saw the AFL making their Hall of Fame announcements and it's a little bit different to normal. It's not the big palaver and ceremony at one of the big casinos in Melbourne. It is being rolled out over a number of nights. On Monday night we saw... John Kennedy Sr. <laughs> Can you see the smile on my face? <laughs> Elevated to legend status. That meant a lot to me as a Hawthorne person because he really is Hawthorne's spiritual father. Uh, we also saw Lenny Hayes inducted into the Hall of Fame. And last night we saw Jonathan Brown and Simon Black. How did you feel about these announcements, Tess? I'm a big fan. It's a festival of fame over four nights. And as we go to air, we've only had two of the nights. So stand by for hopefully a woman to be inducted into the Hall of Fame tonight or tomorrow night. My All of my my digits, even the ones that are hard, the little toes, they're all crossed. I am oh, I am awaiting. That's commitment. The first night was such a good start. It was such a good feeling to have Lenny and John, both leaders, off the field inducted into the Hall of Fame and two people of great character, uh, which we've spoken about a lot. What it says about your game and what it says about the history of your game is who you induct into the Hall of Fame. I did think about... Lenny and the reason why I love the Hall of Fame so much and Lenny Hayes was you know the play that everybody loved from other clubs but also he never won a premiership and it's a way of us getting to honour players who didn't quite culminate in a grand final. A lot of the other people who are amazing like servants of the game but don't win premierships are often forgotten and so I think that that is quite a nice way of remembering and I loved last night Simon Black and Jonathan Brown teammates through glory years of Brisbane. Just, mm. I just love it. You know, Lenny is universally loved. You did touch on that, Tess. He's one of those players who won a Norm Smith medal in mm. a grand final yeah. that he didn't win. He said something beautiful in his acceptance speech, and I'd just like to play a little bit for you now. Mum was probably the real um, role model for me. Um, learned so much from mum, you know, whether that be the importance of hard work. You know, she taught me how to be resilient. Um, she showed me how to care and, and have empathy for others. So... I'd have to say that, you know, mum has been the biggest influence on my life, um, you know, and and thank her from the bottom of my heart. Oh, it's lovely hearing things like that, isn't it? And, you know, you touch on the idea of character and how important that is, and and that's something I won't lie. I think we all feel a degree of anxiety when these awards are being handed out because, you know, the people that you celebrate reflects on the kind of organisation that you are and so there are a number of people that I think we would have you know some real issues seeing them elevated to legend status John Kennedy <laughs> is 
91 and he was interviewed about this honour and it's interesting because he's someone who often talked about loving being a coach because you're just judged by what happened, what the scoreboard says at the end of the game and he didn't really pay much attention to what was sort of outside of, mm. of the field when he was actually coaching. But this is what he said about the honour. He said it didn't matter to me at the time because I was only thinking about the winning and losing. But on reflection, as you get older, what you do outside of the winning and losing matters greatly. And mm. I loved the fact that as he's got older, he's got that perspective. Mm. I have real mixed feelings about the Hall of Fame. I agree in that they're, you know, two deserving people to be elevated, but there is a little part of me that doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> yep, fair enough. It's just part of these institutions that continually to lionise their own people over and over and over again. And, and, and that's fine, but I don't feel a connection to it. Maybe if Peter Searle was in, I'd feel that connection. Yeah, yeah I feel very much the same. I appreciate them because I enjoy history and I think history is important. But you know how Roxanne Gay talked about being a bad feminist? I feel like a bad football mm. supporter yeah. because stuff like Hall of Fame just doesn't resonate with me and I barely kind of lift my head up for it and I often think about you know what does it mean for people who are coming to the game who we ask to kind of enjoy this game what does the hall of fame really mean to them and who is the hall of fame for actually and I always think about if I went like if I was Peggy O'Neill and I went to another country and took up another country's sport like how invested would I really be obviously she got she's really invested <laughs> and she rode that wave to the top but it's not a huge thing for me but I I can appreciate that it's probably quite a big deal for the people who get mm. the accolade. I don't think it makes you a bad football fan. I think no. that with some of these things that especially when the discussions around them are often based in statistics and win-loss records and who won what medal and a lot of those discussions have traditionally excluded people who don't talk about football that way. I know personally I don't find that the most accessible path to enjoying this sport I definitely get where you're coming from the hall of fame it, it kind of presents itself as it's for everyone it's for every football fan but I don't the people that are in the hall of fame that have been inducted in whatever category were able to play the game at the peak of their playing careers for 100 games 200 games 300 games 400 games when so many other groups were excluded from it you get this title for your achievement and there would have been lots of other people who could have played the game in that moment and didn't get to because they were actively excluded from the game and so people have worked very hard and have achieved what they've achieved through their blood sweat and tears and that's great but at the same time other people would have loved to have those opportunities and they didn't get them. Over the last week, protests have taken place in over 140 US cities. Thousands of people in that country have taken to the streets to express their anger over police violence and systemic racism. We've seen protests start to take place in other cities around the world, including London, Auckland and Perth. The death of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer has become a flashpoint. Now, we've talked extensively over the years about the Black Lives Matters movement, specifically through the story of Colin Kaepernick. And as this moment of protest evolves, other sports people are adding their voices to the chorus. In a piece in the LA Times, ex-basketballer and activist and writer Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote, Racism in America is like dust in the air. It seems invisible, even if you're choking on it. 
until you let the sun in. Then you see it's everywhere. As long as we keep shining that light, we have a chance of cleaning it wherever it lands. In Australia, athletes such as Sabrina Frederick and Chad Wingard have been using their platforms to shine a light on police violence and systemic racism in this country. I'd like to get your thoughts on the events of this week, but also on the role that athletes and sport can play in driving social change. Rana? For me, my thoughts on this week, there's so many. And for me to talk about race is like, it's sort of like someone asking someone to talk about the very insides and the very fabric that makes them who they are. It's like asking someone to show you like the memories and the inner monologue of their entire life. So it's it's difficult and it's it's present in every single thing like air. And it is for everyone, but the awareness of that isn't. And I found the last week confusing because I'm not black. I'm often, actually more often than not, assumed to be, which has its own effects in my daily life. But I haven't got into generational trauma. I haven't, you know, I'm not dealing with dispossession or slavery in my backstory or my day-to-day life. I am a woman of colour, which does make me susceptible to systemic racism. And of course, the country my parents migrated from was colonised with its own legacy of brutality and dispossession. But they migrated here. They didn't flee. So I look at the racism and Islamophobia I experience in this country, which for me, and I'm 34, runs the gamut of cold looks to police harassment to online trolling and even some physical assaults. I look at that as the byproduct of colonisation and white supremacy, the seed of which in this country was planted 250 years ago. And so for me, and I acknowledge that this moment isn't about me, but for me, nothing can change if we don't address that original sin and then dismantle and recreate systems that have racism built into them. So it's very personal in that way. The fear is a very real fear. And I feel like I fall into the trap of intellectualising, which isn't of itself a bad thing, but sometimes I think I try too hard to understand something that is confounding in and of itself. Intellectualising also gives me some distance and a way of numbing sometimes what is very real fear and rage in my gut that frankly isn't going away. It's getting worse as I get older. And I'm aware of how visibly brown and visibly Muslim I am. And I live with a fear every day that is sometimes a dull hum. And in times like this feels like an encroaching fire coming to get me. To the issue at hand in terms of sport, and, and the real issue at hand, which is and has to be the systemic harm and disadvantage that First Nations people experience in this country. For me, individual action is important. I've always felt that our big institutions can really do the heavy lifting and I want to see them respond and be proactive. To me, that's politics, media and other gatekeepers of artistic culture and sport. I want to see policy solutions to Aboriginal deaths in custody. I want a discussion around treaty centred in this country. I want to see different narratives played out in our media and arts culture so that our audiences have an honest understanding of who we are as a nation. I want to see sport use its huge influence in this country to amplify the voices of those who are marginalised and to lead by prioritising their access to sport, whether it's grassroots to elite organisations, leadership, executive level to participation. And that honestly won't happen until there are diverse voices top to bottom in sporting organisations. And we've got to start with Aboriginal voices. I've been doing this for long enough now to know that some people ask why should sport weigh in. And yesterday the New York Times reported that the Knicks came out to say that they wouldn't be commenting on the riots and that's fine. 
But I would urge sport to weigh in because, as Chad Wingard said, it's actually about standing up against racism, all of us against systemic racism. And I think supporting athletes of colour to voice their opinions and standing behind them is crucial and, in fact, imperative. And Des Headland wrote about that beautifully in The Age. And I would argue it's the kind of engagement that creates great sporting heroes, moments and organisations because they are tuned in to what is happening with the people they call upon to turn up and buy memberships. They also have the power, the social capital to shift and frame conversations and that power, in my opinion, creates an obligation to weigh in on these issues. If not, then what's the greater purpose of survival, especially post-COVID? Is it to entertain those who can afford to live in a political and economic bubble? Because that's frankly where we're headed. And sport historically has always been intertwined with human rights issues, from Casta Semenya to Adam Goods to the 1968 Olympics Black Power salute to Renee Richards, who fought to compete as a woman in the 1976 US Open, and the list goes on. As we always say here on this podcast, sport doesn't exist in a vacuum, and silence now has always been hurtful. And if we could Actually, I think about this all the time. If we could sit down with all the Aboriginal staff and players, past and present, that worked in the industry, if they think truly the AFL as a whole is nailing it, being proactive about working on systemic racism, what do we think their answer would be? If we asked them if they felt like they had to at times tiptoe around or soften their message, what do you think their answer would be? And I know what I would say as someone who works in facilitating change and social issues in football. If we haven't been doing enough, it's certainly not for a lack of people of colour trying. So whose hands is it in? We're not being held back on these issues because Indigenous Australia hasn't advocated hard enough. It's because there are gatekeepers hindering progress. And so I guess for me, after saying all of that, what I I want us just us to reflect on is are we a gatekeeper? And what is the power that we do have and what is the influence that we do have? And a lot of our listeners are members of sporting clubs and unfortunately institutions don't move unless their people tell them these issues are a priority so whether you can write call advocate to the clubs that you are members of that would that's what will make a difference thank you for sharing that rana we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts because i know that it isn't easy and i know that there is a personal toll to that So thank you. I think it's really interesting in this country that the biggest, one of the biggest conversations we've actually had about racism has been sparked by Adam Goods. And that was because he did something that was very uncomfortable for him and, you know, pointing out one in the crowd who had said something racist. And that actually sparked probably one of the biggest conversations we've seen in this country. Isabella Higgins wrote a piece for the ABC today where she talked about how we have had moments like George Floyd um, and she specifically talked about David Dungay and the way that he died and the fact that we didn't see big protests and she wonders whether the fact that in America there's such an enormous platform via popular culture and politics and sports for African Americans that drives this conversation. I think it's a really interesting thing here because we don't have the same numbers of Indigenous voices in our popular culture. We don't have the same numbers in media. Where we do have some platform is sport. And so I think it is incumbent upon sport to to dig in. And I thought this week with Chad Wingard where he tweeted that he wasn't going to do interviews, that he wasn't contractually obliged to do and he was going to tell his own story. And the kind of response to that A lot of people were really supportive, but a lot of people in the media went straight to a defensive, 
state or, well, uh, you know, how are you ever going to get your stories out there if you don't do interviews and how are people ever going to learn, blah, blah, blah. You don't get to control the way people want to speak. And also, when people have an issue with the media, cop it. I'm a part of the media and I accept that it is sometimes a poisonous industry. And Des Headland wrote about Chad Wingard's decision in The Age, this, the article that you mentioned. And one of the things he said about sports people is he wrote the thing that people forget is that elite athletes elite athletes are people too they live in the world they watch the news they talk with their loved ones they feel and they think so to to suggest that sports people don't respond to the world they live in and simply kick a goal tackle train eat well simply for the benefit of our enjoyment is not just ridiculous but insulting for me being in the world means being actively engaged how can i not the issues that impact upon me and my family, whether it's COVID-19, an Aboriginal elder dying in the back of a paddy wagon, or a black man asphyxiated to death in broad daylight by police means I have a choice. And the choice that Chad Wingard might take is to not speak to the media, and good for him. Yep. Julia? I don't know if I can add too much to all those points that have been raised, but I guess it comes back to something that we, we've spoken about a lot, whether sports people are just entertainers, that there seems to be this um, reflex reaction sometimes when a, when a sports person speaks about an issue not directly related to what they do on the field or on the court. Some sports fans react to that and really just want to pigeonhole athletes as entertainers and not as real people. And I think that we're seeing that that's unproductive, that it dehumanises people and that actually if you care and love watching someone on the field or on the court, you love their athletic ability and you love what they can physically do, but that is grounded in a real human being with a real mind who has experienced all these things and you can't separate them out. And separating them that out is for your own comfort to ignore the realities of the world. That's very true, Julia. And one thing I noticed during the week as well, Lucy mentioned Colin Kaepernick before, and we've spoken about him so, so much, was the idea that the NFL putting out statements saying, oh, you know, this is what we're for and this is what we stand for, not acknowledging their own very recent history. And that just seems to me so hypocritical. And you have to accept when your organisation or when your industry gets stuff wrong. And surely the proper leadership is saying, hey, remember only a few years ago when we fined people for trying to piece protest Mm -hmm. we got that wrong all I wanted to do was agree with you really just just like how constructive would it be to for the NFL to have come out and said we were wrong we were wrong Joe Lockhart who was the vice president might still be the vice president of the NFL during that time did actually come out this week and say no teams really wanted to sign him because they were worried about what the commercial fallout would be from that decision. So Mm. it's interesting. I think, you know, something our very wise Dr. Kate Sears said in our chat group this week was (laughs) there's no safe way to be a black person and to protest as well. And, you you know, when talking about, I know there's been a lot of discussion about protests that have turned violent, a lot of judgment about that. Maybe to end, I'd just like to read a quote from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in that piece, which we will link, where he said, what I want to see is not a rush to judgment, but a rush to justice. Shelley wanted to be here with us for this conversation today too, but unfortunately her day job got in the way. But I was lucky enough to catch up with her for a brief chat last night. It's been a massive week. It's um, been a week full of emotion. Not all of it has been good. I really look forward to weeks like Reconciliation Week and NAIDOC Week because 
there's a spotlight put on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history and culture and a way in which we can work together and celebrate beauty within our culture and look at our history and, um, you know, move forward together as people. It's been a mixed week because of what's happened in America has really impacted what's happening in Australia and shone a light on Aboriginal deaths in custody and a real unsettling vibe through myself and I think the Aboriginal community. But at the same time, it's it made us realise that there are more people that are looking at what's happening in America and then looking at what's happening in Australia and going, hang on a minute, this actually happens here. This isn't okay. I've possibly not been paying attention to this and not been doing what I can about this. So there's also, at the same time, a feeling like <laughs> there's a real sense of, Yes, I feel like we have more allies with us now. More people are understanding what's going on. A lot has been going on, as you can tell, Lucy. When you see what happened to somebody like George Floyd and and when you look at protests that have sprung up and, and everything that you've just mentioned there, what's your response at a really deep level? To immediately run into my son's bedroom and talk to him about how he is feeling after I've taken what feels like an elephant has stood on my chest. Um, and is pushing and actually that feeling hasn't really passed all week. Um, it really feels like someone is holding my chest and it's um, a feeling I've had to breathe myself out of. It's not anxiety. It's um, just just a feeling of like someone's holding me back and pushing me against like a wall. So mm. it's, you know, I breathe myself through that. But I really, my first instinct has been to protect my son and make sure that he understands what going on in the world and how it impacts him and Aboriginal people and unfortunately that came with a conversation about police and and how I need him to stay low with police um, because my dad was an Aboriginal police officer he was actually the first Aboriginal police officer in Australia I grew up with a deep respect for Aboriginal not just Aboriginal police officers all police officers and I and I, I genuinely still have that respect for police officers I just know that there are bad people that put that uniform on every day too unfortunately some of those people are racist and search for aboriginal children and you know I've got children that I work with that tell me stories about what happens to them you know on a very regular occasion when they are out in the streets so there is that element of that with police so we've had to have that talk again about how I need the police not to know where he lives essentially so if something goes on and I'm talking to a very good young man Mm -hmm. like I'm not talking to a kid who's out you know walking the streets like you know my kid's sitting on a computer talking to his friends and his his moral compass is ridiculous like it's actually even worse than mine so (laughs) so you know but I still feel like I need to have that conversation with him and then my next one was to have the conversation with the boys that I look after at Parade College to know how they felt and how they're feeling and and have these conversations with them and to make sure that they know where they fit in the scheme of everything so it's really about protecting the vulnerable people around me really quickly and as fast as I possibly can. For a lot of people there you have the opportunity to tune in or tune out of certain things that are happening in the world as you said just before you know we're at a point now where the attention is gathered and focused Mm -hmm. and it gives us an opportunity to talk about big issues like systemic racism and ways Mm -hmm. forward do you have some ideas about how you'd like that conversation to go yeah I think it's it's something that a lot of Australians don't understand I I, you know I'm dyslexic so I say it in all different sorts of ways but you say it properly (laughs) 
racism. <laughs> now I make up all sorts of little ways to say it. But basically, you know, people don't really understand it in Australia. They, they go, I'm not racist. But then there's a lot of the way that they live their life that has been built on racism. The structure of the way society is in Australia has been built on a lot of things that have happened to Aboriginal people and policies that have been put in, in place with governments that are based purely on racism. And there's just nothing else, like just pure hatred for Aboriginal people in, in wanting them to die off as a community and to be fringe dwellers and and, you know, not be a part of national conversations and even a part of things that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So um, people learning what it is and how they live within a system that is um, built on racism and how they can unpack it and just give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people more opportunities and not see us in a light that we've been painted by um, media and by the government. You know, get to know Aboriginal people. Like we've talked about this so many times, Lucy, having uncomfortable comfortable conversations about things. Nobody expects you to know everything because we certainly weren't taught it in school, especially my generation. The kids are now, but you're, it's really, it's about unlearning the history that we were we were taught at school and learning the real history of our country and what, what this country is built on and why the world looks the way it does in your everyday. We've seen this week a lot of sports people come out and use their platforms. I'm thinking mm. particularly of Chad Wingard, who's been very vocal on his Instagram and on Twitter. Yes. How does that make you feel when you see someone like Chad really using his platform and using his voice? Well, I immediately uh, messaged him and said that I was just really proud of him and that I needed him to take care of his heart as well. We were there for him as brothers and sisters, that we understood how he was feeling. He responded and we had a little chat but he, it makes me so proud of him because he could have just sat back. You know, it's easy to let, you know, like Briggs and, and you know, all of these amazing people that always stand up for us and we're just so grateful for them in the, in the light that they, and they talk about Aboriginal history and culture in a way that, you know, often a teacher who is in a, you know, sort of a space can't talk. <laughs> so, so being myself, I have to watch my P's and Q's. I was just really proud of him and I think you could see him taking his step up. You know, there comes a time in every person's life where you can feel yourself lift to another level. And I believe that that's what we're seeing in turn. Shell, you've been a real teacher to me in a lot of ways about how to, I guess, be a good ally, what I need to do when I don't understand something. Do you have some advice for people who are looking at ways of being a good ally right now? Just find people to talk to, you know, people in your community, you know, reach out. There's so many organisations that you could become a part of and enjoy community events. I mean, not currently with COVID, but there's so many events online within the Aboriginal community that are happening that will give you a really good insight to how people are feeling and I, you know, I'm on social media all the time, as you know, so um, when I'm not working, <laughs> because I enjoy having conversations and there is no question, literally no question that you could ask me that is seen as stupid that I'm not happy to talk to you about. You know, I work with children and they ask me all sorts of questions. You know, it can be about how did you get that round to, you know, how do I break down, you know, the system of um, what's going on that I've been born into. So kids can have all different kinds of ranges as adults can have all different kinds of ranges of conversations. But just talking, the most important part also is making sure that you 
accept Aboriginal history and culture as your own. You know, it's not just mine. It's actually yours as well. You're Australian. You live here. This is your history. This is your culture. And, you know, I might have different levels in which I'm involved in it, but it's who you are as well as an Australian. So make it yours. Learn everything that you possibly can. Attend functions. Have fun with us because there's more beauty in our culture than there are bad. We're a lot of fun too. We're actually quite hysterical people. <laughs> I can vouch for that. <laughs> if, I do, if I do say so myself. <laughs> you know, make sure you're talking to your kids. You know, they're a big passion of mine to make sure that they understand what's going on, especially what's been happening in America and how it is changing the way that people feel in Australia. We don't want it to get to this situation. You know, make sure that they're okay because... They are watching things that we never, ever imagined we would watch at their age. And it's a lot to take in and, you know, talk to them about how you're feeling, how they're feeling and keep a really open um, conversation with them. But yeah, get involved in the Aboriginal community and the culture and the history because we want you to be a part of it and it's yours too. I'm Melissa Hickey and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. Another voice that we miss when it isn't on the pod is that of our own Felicity Race who has a penchant for Googling. (laughs) Prior to the 1980s, no one gave much thought to infection control in sport. The biggest concern of athletes was getting a funky foot disease in the shower or bringing something back from the footy trip. But in 1993, the AFL and some other sporting bodies took a closer look and introduced blood rules, meaning that anyone with actively flowing blood or blood on their clothing had to leave the field. Well, for 17 seasons, we've followed this rule diligently. But is it still necessary? An expansive 2019 literature review by Dr Christopher McGrew titled Bloodborne Pathogens and Sports concluded that there are no well-documented confirmed reports of HIV transmission during sport and further that the theoretical risk for transmission of HIV during NFL matches has been calculated to be less than one per 85 million game contacts. So at a time when the evidence shows we could possibly wind back some of the infection control rules, in walks COVID. COVID which sticks to cardboard, COVID which lives in clothing and which grabs you in the lift going between the floors at work. Well, given the changes we made for a theoretical risk, what changes can we expect responsible sporting codes to make for a known risk? Well, let's start with the most obviously germ-infested game, tennis. Even before COVID, the revolting habit of players throwing their sweat-soaked towel to an unprotected teenager between every point has always troubled me. I predict a new law where towels are banned and all players must instead take to the court fully adorned in beyond Borg styled terry telling headbands and wristbands and possibly grow suits for some of the topplers on the tour. Additionally, all female players are to now be supplied with an Arantxa Sanchez style ball holder clipped to the back of their clothing to cease the habit of storing that extra tennis ball in their undies. If you think that practice is okay, try storing the spare stapler at work in your knickers and whipping it out when someone asks for it, then tell me it's normal. Touching shared equipment such as the net will of course mean you automatically default the game and have to write a full apology letter to Judy Murray before you're permitted to play again. The next sport, naturally, is rally driving. The only safe way for two unrelated people to now travel together in a car is for one to sit in the driver's seat and the other diagonally behind in the back seat. So, under the new rules, cars must be re-engineered for this seating plan. The navigator must now be referred to as the backseat driver, and they must incorporate the seemingly paradoxical phrases of, I think my way would have been faster, and settle down Fangio, into each event, and the driver will naturally wear a hat. In a somewhat ironic twist, cricketers will now be required to sandpaper the ball to remove all traces of virus before passing it back to the bowler. 
And what of footy? Well, grass shall be mowed in 1.5 metre strips to highlight social distancing requirements. All players will have to bring their own clearly named drink bottle to training and games. And, until fans return, haunting crowd noises with a backdrop of seagull will be piped through the stands. And of course, the chicken salt sign will now read hand sanitizer. Dr. Kate Hall is a practicing clinical psychologist and an academic. In August last year, she became the head of mental health and wellbeing at the AFL, a role that she balances with a role as senior lecturer in addiction and mental health at Deakin University. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I imagine one of the things that you would have least expected when you took on this role is that you would be dealing with a global pandemic. How's yeah. the shutdown affected the work that you're doing at the AFL? It's been an immense impact, I must say. I think when I started in the role, um, it was just a week or two before the finals um, and there was quite a lot of activity and, you know, high anxiety and energy. Um, and I remember my colleagues telling me that this was the sort of vibe of the AFL, incredibly high energy, um, everybody operating real, really long hours and, and just having this real commitment to this quite high workload. Um, and then we had our you know, incredible impact of the bushfires in the early part of the year and that was quite a, an enormous impact, particularly on our community clubs and we um, responded, you know, as quickly and as best as we could from a mental health informed perspective. And I thought to myself, you know, that was a real test of a lot of my background, a lot of the mental health policies that we were trying to implement and then, of course, COVID-19 happened you know, from, you know, this year throughout the last few months, we've just been operating at a level which really highlights mental health and wellbeing as just a primary focus. And I didn't anticipate that at all. I thought I would be trying very hard to advocate for mental health and wellbeing. I thought I'd be trying to, you know, position it strategically and for people to hear how important it is. But because of how this year has played out and because of the, you know, incredibly significant impact on our our workforce as well as our industry as a whole, I've really just had to step up and um, it's been an enormous responsibility to hold this mental health and wellbeing portfolio for the industry. It's been in an odd way, being a health professional within a football industry at this time um, has afforded me opportunities that I'm not sure I would have had um, had it been the season as usual. Hi Kate, it's Julia here. It sounds like you're doing a lot to get the mental health education piece going in clubs. What I wanted to ask you about is that so much focus in discussion around mental health is what individuals themselves can do and what what interventions can occur at an individual level. But it's often the structural and cultural factors that cause psychological distress. How do you feel your place to address some of those real structural factors? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. First and foremost, that might be the discourse that individual focus might be the discourse around individual players, I'm assuming is what you're referring to there. From a mental health professional's perspective, I mean, we always work systemically. So from a, I guess, a theoretical standpoint, everything I do is systemic. Whether it's the family system, whether it's the system within a club, um, whether it's the system more broadly from a sociocultural perspective, um, it's still the focus. What we did pretty early on is try to move away from this kind of notion of just um, rolling case studies that mm. is 
the narrative around mental health. I think that they have a really, really important place in destigmatising mental health issues. And I think that they're obviously a way of connecting with the broader fan base and, and also, you know, other players and other young people. But they they are not necessarily a strategic way of communicating core core risk and protective factors for our mental health and wellbeing. Um, and most of those are structural, exactly as you've said. Um, well, one of the things I first noticed was that the storytelling nature of the AFL means that it has this wonderful way of amplifying really strong messaging around mental health and wellbeing, um, but sometimes if it's wrapped up in just one individual, it doesn't really then generalise to others. And and so what we did is really in our mental health strategy, one of the first things I did was, you know, try to bring together an aligned mental health strategy, a representative like steering committee. Players are only one of my stakeholders. Another critical stakeholder for me is obviously all staff, club staff as well as um, AFL staff. And that includes coaching, umpires, um, and even broadening out to families as well. So what we tried to do was to build an industry strategy that really spoke to the risk and protective factors that were quite industry unique. And most of those are structural and cultural um, for example, an over-identification with a football identity is reinforced and modelled and amplified within a club environment for a young person who joins the club. And that is an excellent thing when, um, when we're trying to get you know, really high performance out of an individual, um, when we're trying to get a team to work together. But it also can lead to a risk factor of not engaging in non-athletic pursuits or non-football-related um, um, activity, which we know is a risk factor. So we really looked at those broader socio-cultural risk factors that we could modulate. We, we tried to build into our strategy. And any of the protective factors as well that are part of that socio-cultural or that system were also identified. And so very much working from a systemic perspective for me is absolutely critical because the um, the industry itself is its own system. Um, and at the moment, it's, you know, it operates in this incredible way. It's very agile, as this year has shown. It's very flexible. It can amplify the good and it can amplify the harmful. Um, and so we just wanted to make sure that that was a guiding principle, risk and protective factor balances as a guiding principle even discussions about, you know, how players engage in activities in the off-season, it's still, you know, only, you know, one part of the fact that that is impacted by how little time they have to engage in those activities during the season. And so it's looking at it really from this broader systemic perspective. I could go on about systemic perspective, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just... I just am totally in agreement around, you know, so much is structural. And if we tweak with just an individual focus, we rarely make any sustainable or lasting change, not mm. just to an industry, but to that individual as well. Well, it's great to hear your passion, to be honest, Kate. And jumping off Julia's question and what you were just talking about, sorry, this is Rana, by the way. I'm interested in then when we add layers of a person's intersections like race or trauma or poverty, does your work address those things as well and how do you kind of pivot when those things come into play? Um, one of the things that we have done is identify that inclusiveness, um, equality, you know, these are core elements of 
wellbeing. You know, very, very difficult to separate out mental health and wellbeing from equality and inclusivity for an individual, but also, again, for the broader system. One thing that we have done, though, quite specifically, is include elements within our approaches that do highlight and target minority groups so that we're very, very acutely aware of the unique risks as well as the significant strengths that those minority groups bring. We're really, you know, one of the first things that we did was reach out to our Australian Association of Indigenous Psychologists in order to ensure that we had a culturally appropriate um, referral pathways for our Indigenous players. Over the last few months, we've been working with that group to incorporate their sort of models of social and emotional wellbeing within our strategy so that it is very much a holistic strategy that acknowledges past trauma, that acknowledges the impacts of race and poverty and disadvantage. If you know my work, most of my academic um, and clinical work has been in the space of people who have come from histories of trauma and disadvantage. But it just took me a little while within this industry to recognise that that requires its own call out, really. It just really needs to be um, highlighted and championed. And, and I heard you had Tanya Hoshon earlier, and I've been working with Tanya and admire her greatly in terms of how um, she's been able to contribute to that discourse as well. I guess one of the other things, one of the other challenges that you're dealing with that would be a challenge whether we you know, had a shutdown or not is the fact that a number of players, namely the AFLW players, aren't full-time athletes. How do you deal with prevention and early intervention as well as treatment and response strategies for that group of players? Yeah, when I look at the um, AFLW model and we've got two AFLW players on the steering committee, um, one's Erin Hall and one is Alicia Eva, we're very much guided by their perspectives and the part-time nature of their role is both a risk and protective factor. Um, in terms of early intervention and prevention, I think you probably may have heard of the um, BHB funding that was secured in order to invest in the preventative early intervention space for AFLW players. And I'll be working directly with the player development managers in each of the clubs on a really practical way of just coming at it from more, not just early intervention, but a bit of strong prevention focus because we do think that there are unique challenges that are for W players because of their balance and the um, and the workload um, and their roles um, and that's something that I'm you know quite excited about doing and it's been somewhat interrupted because of COVID-19 but we've been really still keeping it on our agenda and working on. The other thing that we've done is ensure that everything within our strategy is not player-centric. It's really something that is for everybody within our industry. Um, and so particularly during the shutdown, we've, we've noticed that there are um, particular roles that have been impacted quite significantly. Some of our AFLW strengths are actually around um, just how highly credentialed some of our players are and how, how they're engaged actively in other elements um, within the community. We're trying to um, incorporate those protective factors for the industry more broadly. So we're learning a lot from the resilience of the AFLW playing group. And AFLW playing group likewise just seem to have, you know, very high mental health literacy. And that's something that we're also trying to, you know, I guess model and disseminate broadly from the perspective of the prevention program that we're hoping to build 
with AFLW, it's probably something that will inform more broadly um, what we're going to do across the competition, not just within W. Um, one of the things, I guess, for me when I came into the role was, as you outlined, there was a strong focus you know, on responsivity to mental health issues. We want to make sure that as much of our investment is in the prevention of mental health issues, and this industry is just a beautiful place to operate from that perspective. The Headspace partnership that we're launching today is very much around that focus of ensuring that you know we're, we're intervening early in someone's life, but also early in the progression of someone's mental health challenges. That's certainly something that's going to inform not just the W, but the entire industry perspective. It's so great to see the AFL partnering with, with organisations like Headspace. It's a new world. It's, it's a lot to do with your work, Kate, and um, your introduction into footy. Before we let you go, I'd love to know a bit about your footy origin story. Were you a big footy fan previously? Who did you barrack for? Tell us about your, your relationship with footy. Okay, this is the one question that I was really dreading. It's the hard-hitting oh, questions hard-hitting questions. That's the hard-hitting <laughs> question. I wanted to talk to you about mental health and well-being <laughs> and prevention oh, and no. headspace and how my uh, mental health origin story. Before I tell you about my rather uninteresting football origin story, which is non-existent, um, <laughs> it, it's probably worth saying that, you know, much of my, you know, championing of the Headspace partnership has been because of that focus on the younger next generation of footballers and knowing that for me, if we're intervening early enough, then we're really setting up the future of our cohort, our future stars, to have these mm. skills, which will really stand in good stead, not just for football, but also for life more generally. And, and the AFL has this brilliant ability in some respects to connect with young people through its fan base. But I didn't grow up in Victoria. I grew up in the ACT, and so I missed that early intervention for, for AFL football um, and I wasn't indoctrinated. I have very low low football literacy, unlike my mental health literacy. So because I grew up outside of Victoria, when I first moved to Victoria, I you know, was very much on the outer of the football culture. And when I started at the AFL, just as one of the induction, you know, surveys that you have to do, you have to nominate a team, of course, um, because they're also interested in your footy origin story. And I didn't have one, so I nominated a nobody, which was one of the options, with the intention of getting a team as I joined. Um, and so I was given the umpires as my team. <laughs> when I started, so my name plate is based at the offices, is based on the umpires. I love but it. my footy origin story is pretty non-existent I'm sorry I love it anyone who thinks they're on the outer is very welcome here I can assure you that Kate. <laughs> and look no one can ever accuse you of bias so that's good too it's so true it's so true So it's time for what's fast becoming number one with a bullet, favourite segment of the Outer Sanctum, the fifth quarter. Tess, did you want to just play like one of our old openers? Or? Well, I did. You know, I've been making one for months. It's got clips and stuff. It's got <laughs> heaps of stuff in it. But um, you all keep bringing amazing content to the table. And so, you know, one of us, maybe namely Julia, might want to <laughs> give it a whirl this week. What do you think, Julia? I think I can give it a go with apologies to... Art Garfunkel and Paul Simon. <laughs> when you're weary, feeling bored, when Netflix asks if you're 
still there We're on your side Oh, when you've binged everything And new shows can't be We will hook you up Tune in to the fifth quarter We will hook you up <laughs> oh, yes. After all of that does anyone have anything they want to talk about? I might start because, you know, when you read a book and the first thing that you want is to call someone else who's read it and talk about it all the time. But the issue was, one, I couldn't stop reading this book that I it was like two in the morning or whatever when I finished reading it. And also, I don't know anyone who's read it. And also, I don't want to say some of the things in this book out loud because they've stayed with me and they'll haunt me for life. What is I read this book? Rodham. I heard about it on one of my favourite pods, which is the Slate Political Gab Fest, which is an awesome American politics podcast if you're into that sort of thing. And I was reading it and two of the hosts had said, you know, I've read this Rodham book. It's amazing. It really is an interesting book. Essentially, it is the reimagining of Hillary Clinton's life from Curtis Sittenfield if she doesn't marry Bill. What does her life become? <laughs> what does the 2016 election look like? I love things being reimagined and sliding doors moments. I think all that stuff is fun. I'm going to give listeners a warning that I wish someone had given me before I read it. In an attempt, I think, to rewrite Hillary's uh, reputation as being cold or any of that kind of thing. I feel like the author has overdone the intimacy and that she's like <laughs> a fiend for Bill. And I wish... <laughs> fiend for Bill is something I really yeah. wish I hadn't said out There's loud. But I know. the episode. I want that on a T-shirt. There were quite a few lines and sentences that were so graphic and disturbing that I would be like to my husband, oh, my God, never. I, they burned into my retinas forever, and I wish that someone had told me that that was coming. Anywho, so once you whirl through the first third and we get onto the imagined history, it's actually awesome. It's super fun. She uses real speeches, real 60 Minutes interviews, but they're different, and you get a sense of who Bill is and also – who benefits more from their real-life marriage, Hillary or Bill? And I feel like maybe Bill has benefited the most from being married to Hillary. Maybe. Mm. Who knows? Mm. It's a great read, though. I'm passing it around. I'm Definitely. Gonna, um, so that we can all talk about it and all squeal together and eventually just say, ooh. And look, it's, <laughs> it's not the first time that Curtis Sittenfield has read, written a book like this because she did write American Wife, which yes. is about... Laura Bush. Yes. Yeah. Well, this one, she's called Hillary Rodham. Whereas yes. the American wife one, she's it alludes to Laura Bush, mm. but she's not called Laura Bush. So when the, the, the intimacy scenes happen, you can kind of <laughs> lie to yourself that she's else. not talking about Lauren George. Last week, Larry Kramer died. And some of you may know about Larry Kramer. He was a writer and an activist. In 1981, he founded the Gay Men's Health Crisis, which was the first service organisation for HIV positive people. Um, and he then founded ACT UP, which was an organisation who were trying to firstly destigmatize what it was to be gay and lesbian, 
and were trying to force government policies and drug companies to develop drugs that would help fight the the spread of AIDS. But their protesting style was very disruptive. They were often seen as antagonistic or undermining their cause, which seems very relevant, a relevant kind Mm. of discussion to be happening now. But Kramer was always very unapologetic about that and that, um, you know, he said once, you know, if you write a calm letter and fax it to nobody, it sinks like a brick in the Hudson. So, you know, the, the question of civility and whether asking nicely gets you anywhere is, is an interesting topic uh, to discuss at the moment. But he also wrote a play called The Normal Heart, which was about activist movements in the early 80s and about there's a character in it called Ned um, who mirrors Larry's trajectory where he was very impolite in asking for change um, and he got into a lot of fights with other activists who wanted to take the more bureaucratic route. So they're very interesting discussions and The Normal Heart was made into a film which you can watch on Binge where Mark Ruffalo plays Ned. So if you want to see Mark snog handsome men, go for that. (laughs) Great. Well, something I was listening to while I was locked away in my house was a podcast. And you might have seen in the news last week that historian Jenny Hocking won a landmark case in the High Court, which is going to see her hopefully gain access to the so-called palace letters, which are a series of letters between the Queen, her private secretary and Sir John Kerr, who was Governor General in the lead up to the dismissal of Prime Minister Whitlam in 1975. And if you're like us and your chat groups were gripped with that decision, (laughs) with discussions about it and excitement about what it means, then this might be the podcast for you. It's called The 11th. It's from ABC Radio and it is presented by Alex Mann. Even if you think you know everything about the dismissal, if you did Australian history in year 12, which I did, and then at university and you went over this again and again, you will still find things and learn new things in this series. It is really compelling. It's beautiful listening. It incorporates a lot of audio. It has a lovely produced soundscape, which I love where it has that mix of narration and interviews. The thing that I really love about it is it does an excellent job of situating these political events in the wider social and global context. And I think that's something that's really powerful. It takes a listener not just into the corridors of power in Canberra, but to places as far flung as the CIA in Langley and I will leave it at that. I can't wait to listen to that podcast. My parents who migrated here in the 70s, Gough Whitlam is like just a massive hero to them because he, pro- he was probably the first kind of politician they really felt like was for them. Um, so I can't wait to listen to that. Uh, in terms of what I wanted to recommend today, we've all been kind of gripped to social media at the moment with everything going on. And I just wanted to highlight two people who I've really found valuable on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. First is a woman called Eugenia Flynn and she's at Genie one on Twitter. Um, she's a writer, arts worker and community organiser. She identifies as a Chinese Aboriginal Muslim and she is just super profound and thoughtful around her commentary, um, especially this week, but in general. And I would highly recommend giving her a follow. The other one is comedian Amr Rahman, who used to perform with Nazim Hussain um, in Fear of a Brown Planet. He's very sassy, but very insightful and astute. So I would, they've just been kind of giving me a lot of things to think about, but also a sense of calm and smarts as well in this time. The other thing I wanted to recommend was 
we all watched The Last Dance, I'm presuming. The soundtrack to The Last Dance is so good. <laughs> so if you can go onto Spotify and have a look at The Last Dance soundtrack, it's just, oh, I listen to it all the time and it's amazing. I love it. And also just one little thing. I want to acknowledge that today is also Mabo Day and power to all of our Indigenous listeners, friends and family. Thank you for tuning in again this week. Don't forget to rate and review us on mm. iTunes. It really does help other people find us and we really appreciate that show of support. Thank you also to Felicity and to Shelley and also to Dr Kate Hall for joining us. And there is only one thing left to say. Go, Go footy! Julia. Julia. <laughs> You'd need to do it by yourself now. Go football. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.